as we've been reading through Romans, Paul has been making his case that we can only be made right with God through faith in Jesus Christ, that it's the gift of God and not by works so that no one can boast. Now, he spends an inordinate amount of time pounding this into our heads, and the reason is simple. We, because of our sinful, broken nature, we cannot comprehend the idea of a God who would allow the most sinful person you can imagine, who's committed the most heinous act ever committed in all of human history, to go to heaven just because they've cried out for the Lord Jesus Christ to rescue them from their sin. And on the other end, the sweetest of kindergarten teachers might be far from God because they haven't cried out to him. There's something about, we, we just can't comprehend it, that it's not about our works. To think that salvation in any way is a result of our own effort is the worst of sins. And it separates us from God, I believe, more than any other sin, because it's the sin of pride that says, God, I can do it without you. So here in chapter 4, Paul ramps it up. He, he turns up the heat a notch by bringing two examples that he knows at least his uh, Roman Jewish Christian audience will respect. Let's read about him in Romans 4. Romans chapter 4. And I didn't put this up on PowerPoint because it's a whole chapter I'm going to read because I want to make sure we get all of it. Uh, so you'll want to open up your Bibles or your phones or whatever. Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4. Verse 1, what then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? That is the matter of salvation. Where does it come from? How does it happen? Verse 2, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. David says the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the man to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord will never count against him. Now, just to pause here at verse 9, when it talks about the circumcision, the circumcised and the uncircumcised, that's synonymous with saying the circumcised are the Jews and the uncircumcised are the Gentiles, non-Jews. So verse 9, is this blessedness only for the circumcised or also for the uncircumcised? We've been saying that Abraham's faith was credited to him as righteousness. Under what circumstances was it credited? Was it after he was circumcised or before? It was not after but before. And he received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. So then he is the father of all who believe but have not been circumcised in order that righteousness might be credited to them. And he is also the father of the circumcised who not only are circumcised but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. It was not through law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who live by law are heirs, faith has no value and the promise is worthless. 
because law brings wrath. And there is no law, and it, where there is no law, there is no transgression. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to Abraham's offspring, not only to those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope believed and so became the father of many nations. Just as it had been said of him, so shall your offspring be. Without weakening in his faith, he faced the fact that his body was as good as dead since he was about 100 years old and that Sarah's womb was also dead. Yet he did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. This is why it was credited to him as righteousness. The words it was credited to him were written not for him alone, but also for us to whom God will credit righteousness. For us who believe in him, who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, who was delivered over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the way that it penetrates to dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow, that it judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Right now, together with the mind of Christ, we give you permission to cut away at the hardness of our hearts, at our insistence on rebelling and running from you, and pray that tonight, once again, Holy Spirit, through your word, you would convict us, you would restore us, you would encourage us, you would enlighten us, you would strengthen us, and you would send us out to reach the nations through the power of your word, illuminated by you, Holy Spirit. Thank you so much. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. So, you know, we struggle to understand what these Roman Jews thought about faith. The example that they would have cut their teeth on from childhood up would have been Abraham and David. Abraham and David, they are the example of faith. Look at all the good they did for God. Look at all the faith that they had. We read about the origin of the Jewish nation in Genesis chapter 12, where Abraham, the promise of land for God, And people for God, that is the kingdom of God, was given first through Abraham, who they would have considered the father and the founder of the Jewish faith. So Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, it says, The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, your father's household, to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you'll be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and curse you. Uh, whoever curses you, I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So the promise was to Abraham and to his descendants, which also includes those who know and love Jesus today. It's a kingdom promise, and it's about the land and the people of God. This promise was fulfilled partially when God delivered his people, the Israelites, into the promised land, and it's fulfilled partially today whenever anyone comes to know and love Jesus. The kingdom of God grows, and it will be fully and finally and forever fulfilled when we see Jesus face to face, and he makes all wrongs right. He restores the brokenness we see physically in in the earth, and he restores God's people to a place of peace in his presence forever. These Jewish believers also would have prized David as a great example of faith because he was considered the greatest of the Jewish kings. 
So you've got Abraham, the founder of their faith, and then also King David as the greatest and most powerful king within their faith. So Paul grabs the ones who he saw as the most, or who the Jews would have seen as the most influential, and said, let's look at their faith. Let's see which side they land on. Because these these young Christians were evidently struggling because they thought the gospel of Christ, that is salvation through Christ alone, through his cross and his resurrection, was nullified, or rather nullified, the reverence and heritage they had in Abraham and David. They were afraid to believe in Christ because they thought that would nullify their Jewish traditions and faith. They must have viewed faith through the lens of Abraham and David and thought they were justified by adherence to the law. They thought David and Abraham earned their salvation. And the thought would be, we know that if if anybody's saved, it's got to be Abraham and David. So we want to know about their faith. And Paul is teaching them through the power of the Holy Spirit that the gospel is one integrated whole throughout redemptive history. The Bible contains several thousand years of redemptive history. That is the history of God's story and his pursuit of his people. And all of it is one gospel story. The disagreement here was not on Abraham and David being great examples of faith. Everyone would agree with that. The disagreement was the content or you could say the nature or the focus of their faith. What rescued Abraham and David from their sin? What put Abraham and David in a right standing with God? We'll see which side these two faith giants agreed with. So the first point here deals with the focus and the content of David and Abraham's faith. Because again, God through Paul is saying that the Lord saved David and Abraham the same way he does every believer throughout history. And in context of Romans 4, the same way he saved these young Roman Jewish Christians. So the first, the source and substance of David and Abraham's faith. The first thing we see in terms of the source and substance is they received righteousness that was credited to them. In Romans chapter 4, verse 2, to remind us, it says, if in fact Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. And then of David in Romans 4, 6, says, David said the same thing when he speaks of the blessedness of the one to whom God credits righteousness apart from works. Blessed are those whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the one whose sin the Lord will never count against them. So David and Abraham received a credited righteousness. This is a really important term. In fact, it's an accounting term. And what it means is God treated Abraham and David as if they lived a righteous life. Because no one can live a righteous life. It has to be a gift. And so they were credited a a righteous life through Christ, through looking forward to the promise of Christ. So their saving faith was not their personal righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ given to them as a gift. And this would have been a tough sell for these Roman Jewish Christians. I mean, Abraham and David were very accomplished. And Paul is saying that both had nothing to boast about in terms of doing good, doing enough good to merit God's favor. Their focus of how someone becomes righteous before God was off. And that's what, that's what the Holy Spirit is poking on here through Paul's letter to the Romans. Next, the focus of their faith. 
I mean, we already said that Abraham was seen as the human agent uh, through which God established the promise that we all look forward to today. God promised a kingdom and a people that would come through Abraham and ultimately result in heaven, our promised holy land that we'll be in for eternity, and that Christ would come through the genetic line of Abraham. In Romans 4, 13, it says, It was not through the law that Abraham and his offspring received the promise that he would be heir of the world, but through the righteousness that comes by faith. For if those who depend on the law are heirs, faith means nothing, and the promised is worthless. And if you read elsewhere in the New Testament, it says we are co-heirs with Christ in his kingdom, that one day when we see him face to face, we will reign with him. So Abraham received that promise, and it's for anyone who knows and loves Jesus, who's been rescued by him. The promise is rounded out in some other places in scripture as well. In Hebrews 11.10, it kind of comes into a clear picture. For us who are now following Christ on the other side of redemptive history after the cross, resurrection, and ascension of Christ. So Hebrews 11.10, it says, By faith, Abraham, when called to go to the place he would later receive as his inheritance, obeyed and went, even though he did not know where he was going. By faith, he made his home in the promised land like a stranger in a foreign country. He lived in tents, as did Isaac and Jacob, who were heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city with foundations whose architect and builder is God. And by faith, even Sarah, who is past childbearing age, was unable to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. And so from this one man, and he as good as dead, came descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as countless as the sand on the seashore. All these people were still living by faith when they died. They didn't receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. People who say such things show that they're looking for a country of their own. If they'd been thinking of the country they left, they would have opportunity to return. Instead, they were longing for a better country, a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared a city for them. So what Abraham and David were able to see through a a clouded lens. They were able to see just a shadow of what we see now because we have the New Testament. Now, we still only know in part, right? We don't know exactly what it's going to be like when Jesus comes back. We know he's going to come back and he's going to make all things right. And that's going to be awesome. That there'll be no more tears. There'll be no more pain. We know he'll restore all things. But it says in 1 Corinthians 13 that even now we see through a glass dimly, but one day we'll see him face to face. Well, even more so for Abraham and David, but yet they believed. They believed in this promise that they only partially understood because they were given the gift of faith. They didn't earn it. They were given the gift of faith. So the promise to Abraham was a kingdom promise that Jesus would one day come back, that the world would be restored to the perfect place it was before sin entered it, uninterrupted fellowship with God once again, a holy city made by God that we can look forward to entering. But you can see how these early Jewish Christians would have struggled. They would have said, hold on a minute. Abraham's accomplishments are the definition of our faith. He's the founder. Likewise with David. David, according to these Roman Jews, would have thought, man, what are you talking about, Paul? I think they would have been thinking to themselves, David has all kinds of reasons to boast. He was the king who had increased his nation's border and brought peace, establishing Jerusalem as its capital with the ark of God's presence at his heart. He solved civil war and brought the nations together. But he also had many reasons to be crushed by sin. 
He was an adulterer and a conspirator to murder in 2 Samuel 11. And this strong but sinful man discovered the joy of the Lord. We read about in Romans chapter 4, where he says that he's blessed because he's been forgiven of his sins. Notice David doesn't say in Romans 4, 7, and 8, blessed are those who do not transgress or those who do not sin. He says, but he's blessed because God doesn't count his sins against him. Again, this would have been a tough sell for these Jews. I mean, this is David and Abraham. These are the Navy SEALs of the faith. These are ones that little Jewish boys would have run around reenacting the stories that they had heard in synagogue and at home. You know, great feats. You know, David slaying Goliath and, you know, all that stuff. They'd have been reenacting it. Even today, dedicated Jewish people would struggle with Paul's definition of faith here. Because Abraham and David were seen, they they were lifted up on a pedestal that we can't even possibly imagine today. Jewish commentator Hans Joachim writes this. Faith becomes, that is, is tantamount to a zealous obedience in the matter of fulfilling the law. The law is the Old Testament. Paul's position of absolute opposition between faith on the one hand and the law on the other has always been unintelligible to the Jewish thinker. In short, obedience to the law is faith to the Jews. God helps, but it's our effort. It's not much different, unfortunately, for us today. I mean, even people who claim to be Christ followers struggle with a non-works, grace-based salvation. In the book, Evangelism Explosion, by D. James Kennedy, he suggests a question that you should share with someone if you're presenting the gospel to them. You're in a conversation with someone about, uh, about Jesus. And this question's been around for years. And here, here, here it is. Suppose that you were to die tonight and to stand before God and he were to say, why should I let you into heaven? What would you say? Well, I want to polish that question up a bit. Not that I can in any way. Uh, James Kennedy is a lot smarter than, than I am. But maybe a, a slightly updated question for our culture today, same question would be this. Assume with me that heaven is real for a moment. What do you think are the prerequisites for admission? In other words, who gets into heaven and who doesn't and why? My guess is if you were to ask a random bunch of church people this question, why should God let you into heaven? Let's assume it's real for a moment. We believe it's real, obviously, but for someone who even doesn't, let's assume it's real. What are the prerequisites? Who gets in? Who doesn't? This is my guess on how most many would answer, unfortunately. Either A, because I've given my best effort to be a solid Christian. I've tried my best, and I haven't killed anybody. In a lot of churches that have met this day around our country, I believe that's how many would answer. Or B, because I believe in God and try to do my best to please him. The problem with the first response is it's a salvation by works answer. I try my best to be a good Christian, and that's why I should go to heaven. The second is salvation by faith plus works. I believe and I try my best. Both are wrong. Both are dead wrong. Both are a million miles off. And Genesis through Revelation 
communicates just how wrong both of those responses are. And for the non-believing person, they too believe in a works-based salvation. Did you know that even for the person who doesn't believe in God, they're often offended at the claim to salvation through faith alone in Christ because they feel like that comment paints them to be a terrible person. Hold on, I'm not that bad. So you're saying if there is a God, I'm not going to go to heaven. The first type of non-believer is the one who knows they don't believe. One of my good friends is this type of person. Known him for years. And we have very, very, very frank conversations and sometimes very humorous conversations about faith. And we're having a conversation one day and I'm talking to him once again about grace, about uh, uh, salvation by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ. And, you know, I'm talking and he knows enough now. And he said, so Chris, you're saying that if I don't put my faith in Jesus, I'm going to go to hell when I die. And I said, well, let's say his name is John. I said, yes, John, that, that's the teaching of the Bible. And he was furious. I mean, but he can get mad at me. I get mad at him about dumb things he says about atheism all the time as well. And so, you know, he's, we're going back and forth. And I said, you know, John, the reason is you are a really good guy by any person's standards, by people's standards, you're really good. But we all miserably fail to meet God's standards. God doesn't measure our sin, we do. Our righteous deeds are like filthy rags to him. We've all broken our deal he, with him. He, we're created by him and for him, and we broke the deal. We thought we had a better way, and every single one of us has gone our own way. And so God allows us to go our own way. He doesn't force us. No one is good on their own merits before God. But, you know, there's also another type of non-believer, and I think these, are, uh, these have uh, an equally hard time with salvation by grace through faith alone. This type of non-believer thinks they're a believer. They have a strong belief that God exists. They believe that he's loving. They believe he's holy. They believe that every word in the Bible is true. They believe that Jesus is the only way. The problem is that they trust in their own religious performance. They say, hey, I try my best. I go to church. I'm a good person. I'm kind to people. I give my money away. I would do anything for my family. I work really hard at my job, whatever the thing might be. It's always been difficult to truly comprehend salvation by grace through faith alone, apart from works, so that no one can boast. Salvation, if you haven't paid attention to anything else, pay attention to this. I've said it a million times because I think it's a great picture. I'll say it again tonight. You saw little Jonah up here tonight. Now, every family member has experienced this with Jonah. When Jonah is beside himself, and let's say that he cuts his little toe or something like that, I guarantee you these grandparents, mom, dad, aunts, uncles, they cannot get to that big-eyed little rascal quick enough. You know, if his little foot's bleeding, all he's got to do is raise up his arms and cry out, and they're going to grab him. That's salvation by grace through faith alone. Jesus, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. Rescue me. Save me from my sin. I entrust myself to you now that you know what's best for me, that you're going to lead me in the right direction. My life belongs to you. I can't, 
I can't spiritually survive without you. Save me. Every time you see a child crying out for mom and dad because something serious has happened, a knee's been scanned, a broken arm, stitches, whatever, you remember that because it's a beautiful picture of the gospel. So we've looked at the source, the content of faith. It comes through a God-given faith that's a gift. It's not just faith in something. It's not something that we somehow uh, develop all the right beliefs in God and do enough right things, and so our faith muscles are strong enough for salvation. doesn't work like that. Faith is a gift. It's a gift. It's not just belief in God that cognitively we assent to the fact that he's real or something. It is a deep lasting, bubbling up joy inside of us that realizes Jesus is the only way, the only solution to this disease called sin that poisons our soul and separates us from God forever. And he doesn't want that. That's why he sent his son. That's why our sin is such a big deal because Jesus died to take it upon himself so that we could be in right relationship with him. Christ will make us one of his kingdom citizens, that's his desire, and bring us into his eternal kingdom, that is his land when he comes back for us. That's his desire. But what about when our faith is tested? Let, let's talk about when the rubber meets the road here. What about when Christians commit sin? I mean, David, we already said he committed murder and adultery. Believers sin sometimes, don't they? Have you ever sinned? I just saw someone say no. No. That's pretty bold. I'm not going to say who, but I hope they're kidding. We've all sinned, right? We've all sinned and fall short of God's glory. All of us have. And, there, and sometimes Christians sin big, right? They do things that are very destructive to the people around them. This beg, begs the question for many, can true faith be extinguished? That is God-given salvation, not just religious faith that goes to church, but real faith where the person's heart's been transformed and know and love Jesus. Answering this question is key to our understanding of faith. In other words, can a true believer who's been truly saved by God through faith lose their salvation by their own efforts? In other words, can they do enough bad stuff or develop enough of a bad track record that they could walk out of salvation? In other words, can you walk in then walk out of salvation? The short and very clear concise answer is no, no. Some have a great belief that God exists and they believe every word of the Bible but aren't true believers. They're deceived. They are religious but not saved by grace through faith alone. There is no true love for Christ. He's not the priority of their lives. But those who are truly saved cannot lose their salvation. Some of you may be asking right now, why is Chris addressing the question of eternal security when Paul doesn't directly talk about that in Romans 4? I hope some of you are listening intently enough that you actually have that question. That would be really cool. But I'm answering it because it has everything to do with this passage. Romans 4 is saying that we don't earn our salvation as a wage for keeping God's law. It's not by works, but by grace. And the question of faith finds its teeth. The rubber meets, its, meets the road when we're speaking of faith as it relates to what constitutes our salvation. This is the question. So worship team, you guys can go and come on up here. 
The gift of faith is an eternal gift from God. In Romans chapter 4, verse 20, it says, Yet he, that's Abraham, did not waver through unbelief regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God, being fully persuaded that God had power to do what he had promised. Now, it's important to note here, it says he didn't waver. What are most of you thinking about when you read that? You think not wavering in his faith, he was always solid. You know, he's about 6'4", muscles out to here from helping old ladies across the street, you know, uh, at brain just filled with the entire Old Testament, locked in, memorized. Yeah, he just all these great feats for God. You can't get anything past Abraham. It, no, if that's what you're thinking, his faithfulness to God, his faith most certainly did waver. Because that's not the faith that Paul's talking about here in Romans 4. Genesis 15.2 says that he questions God about his promise to bring descendants through him. He lied about who his wife Sarah was to save his own skin, saying that she was his sister when a king wanted her. And as if that weren't enough, he tried to bring the promise of children to fruition uh, through his own efforts by sleeping with Sarah's maidservant, Hagar. And that didn't go well, by the way, in Genesis 16. Abraham didn't always live out his faith. His obedience wasn't perfect. His trust was up and down, but his faith was never extinguished. That's what we're talking about here. We're talking about the gift of faith. If someone has the gift of faith, it can never be extinguished. He hung on to God's promises even through his own faults and sins. His mistakes and sins reminded him and should remind us that our only hope is in God's promises. When you struggle with sin, it should not surprise you. It should sustain you. Let me tell you what I mean by that. When our sin surprises us and makes us feel guilty and makes us feel far from God, it's one thing to feel convicted. But then beyond convicted comes condemnation. When we say to ourselves, I can't believe I did this. Now my track record is soiled. Man, this other believer over here is so much stronger than I am. And we start comparing ourselves with other people. That's condemnation and it's pride. True conviction over sin says, hey, it's about Jesus anyway. It's about him. This is just a reminder that I need him. And what the enemy intended for evil, I know God is going to use for good. Though I might suffer the consequences of this sin, it is not going to separate me from God. I'm going to cry out to him and allow this to heighten my, my need for him. You can tell those who really love Jesus and those who love Jesus and also love self. Those who really love Jesus don't try to hide their sin or run away from it, but they communicate it openly and honestly with other believers pointing to the grace of Christ and the fact that they know Jesus is going to complete the good work that he started in them. Those with weaker faith try to hide it because it's about them and their desire to appear together. You can't extinguish faith by your own disobedience any more than you could extinguish a volcanic eruption with a garden hose. Faith is too big for us to eradicate because it's forged by God himself through the suffering and death and blood of Jesus Christ and the joy-filled, death-conquering resurrection of our Lord and Savior. And it's applied to us through the strength and power of the Holy Spirit who indwells us at salvation. We didn't do anything to earn it, and we can't do anything to lose it. From last week, Romans 3.27, hear this, because it's worth repeating. Can we boast then that we've done 
anything to be accepted by God? No, because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law. It's based on faith. So we're made right with God through faith and not by obeying the law. The Lord had Paul spend so much time repeating this point in about a million different ways through Romans, and you read about it in Galatians, and you read about it in Ephesians, and you read about it through the entire New Testament. The reason is because we get it wrong. We can't fathom it. We can't fathom the steadfastness of God's promises. Promises, The unfaithfulness of God's people were seen from the very beginning. It's no surprise to God that we would be unfaithful. Adam and Eve couldn't remain faithful. Abraham and David couldn't do it. The amazing spectacle of the parting of the Red Sea, miraculously provided food, the conquering of evil kings and evil armies with might beyond Israel's strength were not enough to inspire faithfulness. Human beings cannot be inspired to be faithful to God. You can be inspired to be faithful to a person. We cannot be inspired to be faithful to God. The Old Testament is a testimony to that. Righteousness has to be given to us through faith in Jesus Christ. In reading this passage, I wonder if God were to write this letter today to us, what examples he might use, because we're a different audience, right? Maybe he would mention, point us to Billy Graham, the greatest evangelist who ever lived. Or maybe he would point us to Rick Warren, author of Purpose Driven Life, pastor and jokingly called the Protestant Pope by some. Or maybe it would be uh, the gifted Bible study teacher, Beth Moore. Or perhaps even uh, the author and preacher of old, Charles Spurgeon. Or you fill in the blank. While these are very gifted people, their righteous deeds are a joke apart from saving faith in Jesus Christ. We're sinners and we're made right through the righteousness given to us by Jesus Christ through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit that comes through the gift of faith so that no one can boast. That is it. And if you think this teaching has been redundant, if you are ready to throw up because you've heard that righteousness comes by grace through faith alone in Jesus Christ, then I've done my job. Because I believe that's how Paul writes this letter and we so easily forget it and wander away from it. In a moment, Kimball's going to give those of you who may feel like you're far from God or you're not quite sure if you've done this, if, you re- if you've received God's free gift of salvation by grace. And he's not going to ask you if you've attended church. He's not going to challenge you to think about whether or not you've been moral enough to merit God's favor. He's not going to ask you, are there any especially disgusting sins that uh, have disqualified you from a relationship with God. That's not what he's going to motivate you to think about and challenge you to consider. He's going to ask you, have you received the free gift of salvation? That a child understands. A child understands that kind of need. And pride has distanced us from humbling ourselves and saying, Jesus, I need you please rescue me. You're going to have an opportunity to do just that in a few moments. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this gospel, for the power that it has. We just tell you, we can't fathom the depths of your love. Lord, we understand that uh, uh, no professor with great learning can possibly wrap their mind around it. Lord, that, that, Lord, there's 
There's no counselor or psychologist that understands the human brain well enough to teach us how to, to somehow get it. Lord, there's no amount of time that we can worship you and cry out to you to where we can fully feel it. Lord, we can't even live in a place where uh, we were to constantly receive the full expression of your love. It would overwhelm us. You know that we can only handle it in, in really small doses. But Lord, we thank you that one day we're going to see you face to face, the God of over a million sons, the one who gives uh, mothers love for their children, the one who raises the dead, is going to be in our midst. Lord, and we thank you that you're going to give us new bodies so that we can bear the weight of that glory. We praise you, Lord. Pray that you'd prepare the hearts of ones tonight who are far from you, Lord, that they would pass from death to life. Please speak to them, Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.